our sermon passage, I mean. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 18 is our sermon passage for today. I'll I'll begin reading in verse 6, just to get the context. But uh, we are diving into uh, some very, very deep waters here in Romans chapter 9. We've been working our way through this book for many, many months now. And um, it is one of the most profound uh, writings in all of Scripture. And Romans chapter 9 has some of the deepest doctrinal uh, teaching that we find anywhere in the New Testament. It's a challenging chapter. So before we dig into that, um, I just want to remind us of... Uh, the things that we all agree on, right? And the things that we all believe and that the church um, over the centuries, even regardless of, of uh, denominations, uh, have affirmed, right? We all believe in one God. We believe in the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. We believe that the third day He rose again from the dead, and He ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And from there He will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the church, the communion of saints. We believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Christians have confessed those truths together consistently for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But Christians have also disagreed over various uh, aspects of Scripture. There are passages of Scripture like Romans chapter 9 that are difficult to interpret, that brothers and sisters in Christ have debated and struggled with and have disagreed upon. But if you're not a Christian... What I want you to know is that the things that Christians treasure and prize most, the things that Christians want you to know the most, are the things that I just summarized with what we call the Apostles' Creed. That Jesus, for our salvation, for us and for our salvation, as another creed says it, did all those things, came to the earth, died on the cross, rose from the grave, uh, ascended into heaven, Uh, He did all those things to save us, to grant forgiveness and salvation and healing and reconciliation with God to everybody who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ. So those are the most important things. Those are the foundational things. Those are the things that all of us agree upon. But there are things in the Bible that are difficult for us to wrestle with. And when we have to wrestle with those things, we want to make sure we put them in proper perspective. The things we are looking at in Romans chapter 9, these are, not, um, these are not what we call like first order doctrines. They're not things that we all have to agree on in order to be Christians. Right? And so uh, as we wrestle through these things, we want to be gracious with one another. We want to be patient. Uh, sometimes it can take uh, not only just weeks and months, but sometimes years to wrestle through certain passages of Scripture to really get our minds and hearts around what God is saying. So uh, I encourage you as we read through and work through Romans chapter 9, if this is tough for you, um, if you are wrestling with some of these things, that's okay. And and we want to be 
gracious again with one another. We want to be patient with one another. But this is God's Word, and so we want to wrestle with it. We don't want to ignore it or say, well, that's too hard. I don't want to have to think about that. Everything in the Bible is important and profitable for us, and so we want to spend time prayerfully considering what God says, even if at times it makes us uncomfortable. So, with that in mind, let me read for us Romans 9, beginning in verse 6 through verse 18. Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, again, our focus is on verses 14 to 18. So we're beginning with the question there in verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice on God's part? But it's important for us to know why Paul raises that question. Of course, Paul already knows the answer, and he's going to give us the answer. But he raises that question because he knows at least some of the people who will hear what he's just written in verses 6 through 13, they're going to hear those verses and they're going to think, Nuh-uh. If God acts that way, if that's what God does, that's not just. That that can't be right. That can't be fair. God can't do things that way. He knows some of the people are going to hear these words and that's what they're going to think. And so because he knows that, he raises that question so he can then answer it for us. But the reason why he answers the question is because of uh, two things he's just said. Number one, in verses 6 through 9, he says that God chooses who his children are. And it's not all the physical offspring of Abraham. He's wrestling with the fact that many of the Jews who had all the promises about the coming of the Messiah, the coming Savior, all throughout the Old Testament, many of them, when the Messiah came, they didn't believe. Why didn't they believe? Does them not believing mean that God has not kept His promises to them. And Paul says, no, that's not what it means. And one of the reasons it doesn't mean that is because God has always had a, a group of people 
sort of inside the nation of Israel, so to speak, a a remnant, he'll call it later, a group inside the physical offspring of Abraham who are the spiritual offspring of Abraham, we could say, the the true children of God. And the first example he gives of that is um, Abraham's son Isaac and uh, his son Ishmael. Remember, Ishmael was his son by Hagar. It was not the son that God had promised to give him. And Ishmael did not receive the inheritance, did not receive the promises, even though he was an offspring of Abraham. He was not a child of God. He was not a part of the people of God. And so he says, it's not everybody who's physically descended from Abraham who's really a child of God, who's really a child of promise. Then he gives a second example, just in case that one didn't convince everybody. He gives a second example in verses 10 to 13 of Jacob and Esau. Now what's unique about Jacob and Esau is these brothers were twins. So they were as similar in some ways as you could possibly be. Right? They're both um, offspring of Isaac. Right? So Abraham is their grandfather. But what else, the other thing that's significant about them is that God told their mother, Rebekah, even before they were born, which one would inherit the blessing and the promise that was given to Abraham and then given to Isaac. She was told it's going to go to the younger son and not the older son. And God told her that before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, and Paul says he did that so that his purpose of election, his purpose of choosing who his children are, would continue. So he chose Jacob and not Esau. Now, again, Paul knows that some people are going to hear that and think, how is that fair? How can God do that and still be just? Now, here's the first thing I want to say about that. If you hear Paul's words in verses 6 through 13, and that's the question that comes to your mind. How can that be fair? How can that be just? then that means you're on the right track. You're understanding what Paul is saying. Because if you are asking that question, then you're asking the exact question he expects you to ask based on what he's just said. If you take verses 6 to 13 and you interpret them and explain them in a way that nobody asks the question, is God then unjust? Then you're not understanding what Paul is saying correctly. Paul doesn't say... If you think God is unjust, you've you've misunderstood what I said. Paul says, if you think God is unjust, then there's something you need to be reminded about God. You've understood me correctly about election. This is how it works. God chooses who his children are, but that does not make him unjust. And he's about to explain to us why that is. Uh, he, He states very clearly Uh, there in verse 14, that God is not unjust. Is there injustice on God's part? He says, by no means, may it never be. Absolutely not. So if our response to what Paul has said about God choosing Isaac and not Ishmael, God choosing Jacob and not Esau, if our response to that is, God can't do that. God, God can't act that way. That's not just then that means our natural response is wrong. And we need Paul to show us why it's wrong and show us how we ought to think about this instead. Right? So he knows we're going to ask this question, and he knows some of us are going to have sort of the wrong 
instinct, so to speak, about what Paul is saying here about how God is working through um, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And what he's going to do in the rest of this passage is he's going to remind us about what it means for God to be God. And why God can act this way without being unjust. So the first thing he does is in verse 15, he quotes a passage from Exodus 33 where we read earlier. Where God speaks to Moses and he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, what does God mean when he says that? Why does he say that to Moses in the first place? Remember, Moses said to God, he said, please show me your glory. I want to see as much of you as it is possible for me to see and not die. Remember, because nobody can see God's face and live. But God wants, or Moses wants to see God, wants to see his glory. And God's response to that is, okay, but you need to know, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Meaning, at, at its root, what that means is, I don't have to do that. I don't have to show you my glory. I don't have to answer your request that way. I'm God and I get to choose who I show mercy to. You can't back me into a corner, Moses. You can't make me do this. I get to have mercy on whom I want to have mercy. I get to have compassion on who I want to have compassion. So you need to know that though I'm going to do this for you, it's not out of obligation. It's a gift. It's something I'm choosing to do for you. So this is um, God reminding Moses, in a way, who's in charge. And and who is God and what it means to be God. That God gets to decide what he's going to do. It's sort of a, a declaration of freedom from God himself. I'm free to show mercy to you if I want to, and I'm free not to. If I choose not to show mercy. So, and then God goes on later in that passage to say to Moses, I am the Lord, and that means I'm a God who's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and on and on and on. So, the basic truth, in other words, that Paul is calling to our minds with this quotation is that God is a merciful God, but God gets to decide who he shows mercy to. He doesn't show the same mercy to everybody. And he doesn't have to. He doesn't owe it to us. He didn't owe it to Moses. He doesn't owe it to me. And he doesn't owe it to you. So when Paul says, I know some of you are thinking, isn't it unjust for God to give blessings to Jacob that he didn't give to Esau? And for God to give blessings to Isaac that he didn't give to Ishmael? Paul says, no. It's not unjust for him to do that because he didn't have to show mercy to Jacob or Esau. He didn't have to show mercy to Isaac or Ishmael. He's not wronging Ishmael and he's not wronging Esau by not giving to them the same things that he gave to Jacob and the same things that he gave to Isaac because he didn't have to give them to Either of them. God is free 
to show mercy to whom he decides to show mercy to. And if that doesn't quite explain it for us, he he gives us a further explanation in verse 16 when he says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, or some translations say something more like, it depends not on him who wills or him who runs. So exerting yourself, running, striving. It does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So, What is the ultimate determining factor? What does it all hang on? Whether somebody is uh, elected or not, blessed or not, saved or not, shown mercy or not, what does it ultimately depend on? Does it ultimately depend on our will? Does it ultimately depend on our striving, on our efforts, on our works? Paul says no, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That was his point with Jacob and Esau. That was his point in saying, look, they were twins. They were born at the same time. They were, it was decided who was going to serve who before they had done anything good or bad. It was not based on their works. It was solely based on God's call. And he emphasizes that, right, to say, look, it doesn't depend upon you ultimately or me. Jacob didn't receive the blessing because of something Jacob did. And if you go back and read the story of Jacob and Esau, um, you might be reminded that uh, there's really no way it could have been based on anything Jacob did, because Jacob was not really a great guy. Right? Remember, his name means cheater, and he was a cheater. Uh, he, he, you know, he's not the, really the kind of guy you would trust a whole lot or maybe want to hang out with a whole lot. And when you read through all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, all the people God saves are, in some ways it's really encouraging, in some ways it's, it's kind of unnerving, they're all a lot like you and me. They're all messed up. They've all got bad things in their stories. They've all got baggage in their history. They've all got things that you think, Can God use somebody like that? Can God save somebody like that? Can God love somebody like that? And it's encouraging because we're like that. And we need to know God can love and save and use people like them because that means He can love and save and use people like us. But if He loves and saves and uses people like us who are broken and messed up and who cannot possibly live in such a way that God would say, man, i got to have that person on my team then that means the reason we belong to Him is not ultimately because of something about us. It's about something that God decided to do for us in spite of us. That's what Paul's saying in these verses. It doesn't depend upon our will or our exertion. It depends on God who has mercy. Think about it this way. Is there anybody here who wants to raise your hand and say, the reason that God saved me, the reason God showed mercy upon me, is because of something I did. I don't think any of us wants to say that, right? Nobody wants to say that the reason that we are, the reason that you're a Christian is because 
you did something. You accomplished something. You, you achieved something. If two people hear the same gospel preached, and one of them believes it, and one of them doesn't, which is the problem that Paul is addressing here. How come so many of the Jews who heard about the Messiah didn't believe Him when He, come, when he came? If two people hear the same gospel and one of them believes it and one of them doesn't, the one who believes it, is he going to stand up and say, well, I was, just, I was smarter than that other guy. I, I was more spiritual than that other guy. I had done a better job preparing my heart to receive the truth than that other guy. No, you're not going to say that. You're going to say, I'm so grateful God had mercy on me. I'm so glad God saved me. I mean, how many of us, uh, part of our story is, um, I just didn't, I didn't see it. I, I, didn't, I didn't get the big deal about Jesus. I, I didn't realize how much I needed Him. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize uh, how... how glorious of a Savior he was, and then all of a sudden it was like somebody just turned the lights on. It's like all of a sudden things that didn't make sense made sense. How do you explain that? It's God who has mercy. Now, uh, he gives us another example in verse 17 and 18 in Pharaoh. So he's sort of given us a, a positive example with Jacob but this is in some ways a, a negative example with Pharaoh. He, in verse 17 he says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, so now I've got another quote from Exodus, this is from Exodus 9.16, The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, as I've said before, whenever Paul uses a quotation from the Old Testament, often he intends for us, expects us, to know sort of the whole story behind that quote, and not just the quote itself. Right? And, and one of the ways you know that here is in verse 18, when he explains what this means, he, used the, he uses the word harden. Right? So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. There's nothing about hardening in that quote in verse 17. But if you know the whole story of Pharaoh, you know one of the key themes is that God says to Moses from the beginning, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Right? So Paul expects us to have that story in the back of our minds, to know that that's part of what God is doing. In Exodus 4.21, when uh, God is first uh, telling Moses what his job is to go back to Egypt and talk to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go and all that. In Exodus 4.21, God says to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. In other words, God wants Pharaoh to resist him long enough that Moses can do all the signs bring all the plagues that God is going to give him to uh, bring against Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and to make sure that Pharaoh resists long enough, God says to Moses, I'm going to harden his heart. I'm going to make sure he doesn't give in too early. 
And that's what God is talking about there in verse 17 in this quote from later in Exodus 9 where God says to Moses, or says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, this is the reason why I raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So I have put you in this position of prominence and power so that I could rain down on you all these ten plagues to show how great my power is so that nobody would have any doubt that the God of the Hebrews, who's delivering them now from slavery in Exodus, is a real and living God so that the word will spread to all the nations that the God of the Hebrews, he's the real God. Now that's not mercy for Pharaoh to be put in that position. His heart was hardened against the Lord. He didn't receive the blessings of the Lord. God raised him up and hardened his heart for his purposes. But Pharaoh didn't really benefit from that, did he? Is God allowed to do that? Without being unjust? Yeah, he is. That part's a little bit harder to swallow and harder to get our minds around, but it's equally true. That's why Paul says there in verse 18, So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God gets to decide. That's part of what it means to be God. If that seems unfair, remember that Pharaoh did did not start in a neutral position. It was not as though Pharaoh was eager to listen to God and God said, no, I don't want you to listen to me. I need to harden your heart so that you'll rebel. Pharaoh was already rebelling. Pharaoh already had God's people in bondage. Pharaoh was already resisting God's purposes and God's will. Pharaoh, uh, in other words, was a sinner. God didn't owe him mercy. And God was free to use him For his purposes, he didn't make Pharaoh do anything he wouldn't have already done. And so Paul says, look, God can do this. As he'll say in the next set of verses, we won't get into this in in detail, but he says um, in verse 21, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? God's the potter, we're the clay, he's the creator, we're the creation. Isn't he free to do with his creation what he wants? Isn't that part of what it means to be God? And it's not just Pharaoh that this happens to. Do you remember the passage in Exodus chapter 6? We love to hear, preachers love to preach on, it's a glorious passage in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple, and there were seraphim around Him, right? And they had six wings, and they were covering their face and their feet, and they were flying, and they were crying, Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah says, I, I was undone. I said, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And an angel brought uh, a coal from the altar to atone for his sin, to purify him. And then God said, who's, who's going to go for us? Who's going to be our messenger? And Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. Right? And that's where we usually stop. But 
What did God tell Isaiah to say? He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In other words, Isaiah was sent with a message of judgment. The people were already rebellious and sinful. They had broken covenant with the Lord and there was idolatry going on. And uh, God says to Isaiah, your, your message is a message of judgment, a message of hardening. That was for the people of Israel. And that passage gets quoted by Jesus in Matthew 13 and Mark 4 when his disciples say, how come you teach in parables all the time? Why don't you just speak plainly? This is the reason, Jesus says. When Paul is in Rome at the end of the book of Acts and he gets his last recorded chance to preach the gospel to the Jews, this time the Jews who are there in Rome, they come to his house or he's under house arrest, he explains the gospel and many of them reject it. They reject Jesus as the Messiah. And what does Paul do? He quotes Isaiah 6. Your eyes have been blinded. Your hearts have been hardened. You are under the judgment of God. In other words, he's saying basically the same thing he's saying here in Romans chapter 9. The reason why many of the Jews are not believing in Jesus the Messiah is because God has not chosen them. God has hardened their hearts. Now, I said last week, and I want to say again, uh, these are hard truths to wrestle with. And um, so I I want to encourage you to do a couple things. Um, Prayerfully, patiently work through Romans 9 with me, and on your own at home, too. Um, Don't, it's very easy when we encounter things in Scripture that are, are hard, it's very easy to just react and say, I don't like that, I'm not comfortable with that, truly that can't mean that, and close the book and, and go do something else. Um, but anything in, that God has given us in Scripture is profitable for us, it's, it's good for us, and so we need to wrestle with it. Right? Um, the second thing is, uh, I'll be the first to admit, I could be wrong about the way that I'm interpreting these verses. Other Christians interpret them other ways. And you might think, the way you're explaining that does not make any sense to me, and I don't think you're right. I've heard somebody explain it a different way, and I think they're right. That's fine. That doesn't hurt my feelings. I'm okay with that. Um, And the main thing I want us to do is not to fight about this. right? Some people people love to fight over verses like this, and um, I was one of them many, many years ago, and I've just done fighting over stuff like that. Um, I'm trying to preach it as faithfully as I can. Um, and uh, if you want to talk about it and discuss it, and we can do it in a kind, charitable way, I'm happy to do that. Um, but if you want to fight about it, I'm going to shut it down, because I don't want to fight about it. And I don't want you to fight with anybody else about it. Right? Um, what these verses are for is not for Christians to draw a line in the sand against each other and take sides and you know, bicker and fight and all that kind of stuff. These verses are here to remind us, one, about what it means for God to be God and for us not to be God. And as obvious as that sounds, sometimes we have to be reminded. 
That we're not God and God's not like us. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. And that means sometimes we just have to say, I think I know what that means. I can't fully wrap my mind around it. But that's okay because you're God and I'm not. And if I can't fully understand it, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised about that. You know, because I'm not God. I can't understand everything that God can understand. I can't even understand how God can do all the things that God does. That's okay. Right? So, um, and and the other thing that, that these verses are here for is to explain why things are happening the way that they are. Why are many of the Jews not believing in the Messiah? And to to sort of carry it over to our own context, why do so many people hear the gospel and not believe it? Is something wrong with God? Is something wrong with the gospel? Is something wrong with us? Paul's answer is, no, God's doing what he's always done. He's doing what he's always done. This is how he's always worked. This is how it's always happened. And he's got a big plan. We're not even going to get to the, to the climax of the plan until Romans chapter 11. God's got a big plan, right? So don't get frustrated or give up now because God's doing more things than you have yet seen or thought about. Right? God has all of this under control. And the last thing I want to say is when we read passages like this, and when we wrestle with truths like this, sometimes what it can do <clears throat> is it can, it can make us have what, what someone has called um, hard thoughts about God. It, it can make us feel like God is cold and, and distant and disinterested, and he's, like, maybe He's not as loving and compassionate, as merciful as we thought that He was. If that's what those verses make you think, that's, that's not how we're supposed to respond to those verses. That, that, that's a misunderstanding. Remember, Paul's emphasis in these verses is not on hardening, though that's a true part of it. He brings that in. His emphasis is on mercy. His emphasis is on God is showing mercy to many of the Jews. Paul's a case in point. He is showing mercy to many people, all of us who are Christians here and around the world are evidence that God is loving and saving His people. The same God who chose Jacob and not Esau, the same God who said to Moses, I'm free to show mercy to whom I want to, and, I'm, and as Paul says, he's free to harden whom he wants to. That's the same God who freely sent His Son in love. The same God who freely gave up His Son for us. The same God who Paul said earlier in this same letter, while we were yet sinners, sent His Son, sent Christ to die for us. Loved us despite our weakness and our rebellion and our sin. So, wrestle with these verses, pray through these verses, ask God to help you understand these verses, but don't let these verses cancel out the other verses either. You got the, the struggle is to keep all the parts of all of the Bible all together. And none of us can do it perfectly and fully because it's just too much. Right? But Paul is trying to help us see the things that he's saying, they're not new. This is how God worked in the Old Testament. This is how He works now. But His emphasis, His, his um, major note in all of this is that our God is a God of mercy. Just like 
he said to Moses, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. No matter how you wrestle with these verses, don't forget those words. Let's pray.